So Genesis 37 and verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Our Father, you've taught us that man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from our Father above. The Lord Jesus himself uh, lived uh, by that word. And so as that word comes to us now, Father, we pray uh, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive it with joy. Father, show us this morning, we pray, our sin, but in greater measure, show us our Saviour and fashion us into his likeness. If we ask in his name. Amen. Have you ever been accused of being on the wrong side of history? It's one of those phrases that seems to have popped up in the last few years uh, as, well, essentially a slur, an insult. Uh, Mike Pence, the vice president of America, uh, used it uh, to attack the Russians. He accused the Russians of being on the wrong side of history earlier in the year in regards to the Syria conflict. And it's the kind of thing that Christians are, are accused of regularly nowadays, uh, typically in their attitudes to kind of moral issues that divide society. Uh, Christians who share Christ's convictions on uh, marriage or on gender or on sex or on uh, the rights of uh, the baby in the womb and abortion uh, typically are, are accused of being the wrong side of history. Now, now, even if someone hasn't used that phrase to you, if you're a Christian, it, it may well be that you, you, you've kind of felt, as it were, that you are the odd one out. Uh, in the office or at school or at university, you just, you feel like you need to keep quiet. Uh, you, you, you sense that your opinion on lots of topics is going to be pretty unpopular with everybody else. You're the oddball, you're the minority. And it may even be that that's come out in conversation. Uh, I, hope, I hope there are many amongst this morning who are still sceptical about the Christian faith. 
not quite sure whether it's for them. Still got questions. We, we hope that Christchurch is a church that you feel at home at when you come along. I hope Sunday mornings can help you to explore and work out what you think of Christ and, and the gospel. But it may, may well be that one of the things that would kind of hold you back from wanting to commit to, to following Christ is, is the knowledge that actually it seems that, that Christ, and therefore Christians, believe a whole bunch of stuff that is just different from what I've been taught. It's different from the kind of moral code I've picked up from school or friends or TV or whatever it is that forms us. Certainly that would be the case with several members of my family. One of them at one point told me to stop talking to them about Christ in particular uh, because of the whole issue of homosexuality. Now, this particular family member wasn't same-sex attracted. But they said to me, I could never become a Christian because you guys don't believe that people of the same sex can get married. So I just don't want to hear any more. That was it. Game over. Doesn't matter about the evidence. Doesn't, in some ways, matter about the truth one way or another. You hold, and very clearly Jesus holds, which is why Christians hold, opinions that are against what I think. In many ways, the story of Joseph uh, teaches God's view of history. Uh, Joseph is part, the Joseph story is part of God's well, grand story uh, that began just a few chapters earlier in Genesis and climaxes in the book of Revelation. Uh, for many of us uh, in England, I guess, I suspect at least, many of us, our first introduction to this story is the musical, you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, do you know the one word that's not in that musical? Well, there's lots of words on that musical, I suspect, but uh, the one surprising word that's not in the musical is the word God. Okay, you can get right from the beginning to the end, and you'll never hear the word God. And I used to think, you know, what a scandal, Lloyd Webber, or Tim Rice, whoever wrote the words. What are you playing at? And then you read Genesis 37, and at least in chapter 37, the word God never comes up. Maybe Lloyd Webber's a better theologian than we've given him credit for. And to be fair, it does come up later in Joseph's story, say. He probably should have brought it in at some point. But in Genesis 37, you never see God's name mentioned. So instead, what we have is God, if you like, working behind the scenes. We we detect his hand at work rather than being explicitly told what he's doing. So we're going to dive in and look at the story and really just look at two characters this morning to set us up and give us a bit of an insight into what this story of Joseph and the brothers is going to tell us. So first first of all, we're going to look at Joseph, who's the son born to rule. Joseph, the son born to rule. Uh, as the story begins, he's, <coughs> excuse me, he's very young. He's 17, okay, younger than a fresher just arriving at Leeds University. Uh, he's not even done his A-levels. And he's out pasturing the flock. That is, he's a shepherd in verse 2. He's a shepherd out with his brothers. Now, even if we've not read the first 36 chapters of Genesis, which many of us won't have done, we, we might pick up from verse 2 that not all is well in the household. Uh, Joseph is pastoring, shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, a lad, with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives, plural. That's usually a bad sign, isn't it? Wives, plural, is usually going to lead to trouble. In fact, these two are just two of Jacob's four wives. Jacob married, or wanted to marry, a girl he fell in love with called Rachel. And he was tricked at the altar into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah, So the deal was then that he would stick with Leah, but he would get Rachel as well. And then in time, as their family story went on, Jacob ended up 
well, marrying would be a generous term with it, but certainly having children with each of their servants too. So Bilhah and Zilpah are the female servants of Rachel and Leah. So Jacob ends up with 12 boys from four different women. And that is very unlikely to produce a happy family environment, isn't it? Uh, this is properly Jeremy Kyle show territory. And the story zooms in on Joseph. And Joseph is often painted, perhaps if you've, you've heard the story of Joseph before, he's often painted as a kind of arrogant young man as the story begins. Uh, conceited, a bit pleased with himself. And the story of Joseph is taught as if it's this kind of humbling story for him before he eventually rises in triumph uh, at the end. But there's three pieces of evidence that, that paint Joseph in this light. And I'm not sure that they're actually quite telling us that he is this arrogant young upstart. But let's look at them. The first thing we see Joseph doing, the first fact, I suppose, about Joseph we learn, is that he brings a bad report of his brothers to their father. End of verse 2. They're out in the fields, and Joseph brings a bad report. So the, so the kind of uh, the, the take goes. Look at him, sneaking on his brothers. He's that kid in the class who runs off to teacher. Teacher, sir, sir, I just saw Darren break a window. Sir, sir, you know, Derek didn't do his homework. He, he you know, threw it away on the bus. But actually... If you look at the story, if we read the whole story, it's pretty likely that the bad report of the brothers is true. If we read a couple of chapters earlier, we'd see two of these brothers, Simeon and Levi, trick a town full of men into circumcising themselves, and while they're still recovering from that procedure, run in and slaughter them all. Uh, Just another chapter earlier, we'd read about Reuben, who's actually the eldest of the 12 brothers, who sleeps with Bilhah. Remember Bilhah? Bilhah's one of Jacob's wives. So he sleeps with his mother-in-law, his father's wife. If we read on a chapter, as we will do later, in fact, at the end of chapter 37, we'll do next week, uh, we see all of the brothers uh, arranging for Joseph to be chucked in a pit. They think about killing him, and eventually they settle on selling him to be a slave to some Ishmaelites. These are not guys with a good character. So when we read that Joseph brought a bad report of them, went out to the fields and came back home and said, Dad, actually, they're, they're not doing a proper job. You know, they're not caring for the sheep. They're drinking, partying. It's pretty likely he's telling the truth. Joseph, on the other hand, as we see his character unfold in the story, is at every step a man of real integrity. Again, sorry for those of you who haven't heard the story before, but, but just to give a little sort of taster, maybe a reminder for those who have, think of him with Potiphar's wife, this Egyptian official's um, wife tries to seduce him and he flees even though it's going to end up in terrible trouble for him he is a man of integrity throughout the story what else do we learn about him well we do learn uh, in verse three that that he is the favorite son of jacob because he was the son of his old age he's not actually the youngest son benjamin is younger but but perhaps because jacob is uh, most in love with joseph's mother rachel that was a favorite wife Jacob, Joseph, sorry, becomes the favourite son. And so he's given the famous robe. He makes him a robe of many colours. Uh, just on the robe, it's become famous again, I guess, largely because of the musical. Uh, the, the robe word there, think of a kind of tunic, a okay, long sleeve T-shirt that would reach down to your knees and long sleeves and all the rest of it. Um, was it multicoloured? No one knows. There's a little word there that's translated multicoloured and almost no one knows how to actually translate it. When, when they translated the Hebrew of Genesis into Greek, 
the Greeks had a crack and put a word in that meant multicolored. So that's why we've had it ever since, multicolored. But, but no one really knows what it means. That's why the old footnote will say it was just a long sleeve robe. But either way, it's a robe that marks him out. He's special. He's the favorite one. Yeah, that's not really Joseph's fault. It's bad form for Jacob to pick one of his 12 sons as a favourite. You might know this in your own family. If you choose a favourite, it's going to lead to disaster, isn't it? I can hear parents laughing. <laughs> Better not ask. Jacob, you'd have thought, would know this. Jacob's own family story is one of favouritism. He was the favourite of his mother, and his older brother Esau was the favourite of his father. And that led to most of Jacob's life being spent in exile away from his family as the two brothers fought and fell out over this favouritism. But here he is at it uh, again. But, but I don't see that as a slur on Joseph. It's not his fault if his father picks him as a favourite. But he is the favourite son and robed as such. And then, of course, we come to the dreams, perhaps the most famous story of Joseph. Joseph, the dreamer. What do we know about these dreams? Well, although it's not said explicitly, the dreams are obviously from God. This isn't Joseph having some, you know, dodgy cheese late at night and having kind of hallucinatory dreams. This is, these are dreams given by God. That's one of the reasons we're told there are two of them. Uh, later in Genesis, Pharaoh will have two dreams with the same message. And it's, it's this principle, a Bible principle, actually, that um, if something's going to be true, it has to be confor- confirmed by two or more witnesses. So Joseph has two dreams that say more or less the same thing. They are dreams from God. They are revelation in that sense. Do they show Joseph to be arrogant? Well, it kind of depends how you read them, doesn't it? If you look at verse uh, 6, you could read it like this. Uh, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. (coughs) Or with the sun, moon, and stars. The second dream in verse 9. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. You could read it in that kind of arrogant voice. And it often is taken that way. But you could just read it in a normal voice. I'm not going to do it again, but as I read it earlier, I deliberately tried not to make it sound like Joseph was particularly arrogant. It is a true account of the dream that God has given him. might be a bit embarrassing, but it is a true account. And when God reveals something to a a prophet, the idea is that you pass it on, not that you keep it to yourself. Joseph has revealed the truth about what is to happen. Now, incidentally, this is a bit of a side point. It's one of the reasons why reading the Bible out loud, particularly, I guess, at at church, is is kind of a big deal. It's why we, on the whole, get the preacher to do it. Because even just reading is an act of interpretation. You give meaning to the passage just by saying the words. So it makes sense that whoever happens to be preaching uh, any particular week then reads the passage. Not because no one else is capable of pronouncing the words rightly or something like that. But, but rather, they've hopefully spent the week praying about the passage, studying in, trying to work out what it means. And so that when they then read the passage, hopefully it comes with a, a degree of interpretation already. It's probably why in 2 Timothy, in fact, Paul says to Timothy, the minister in Ephesus, that he is to devote himself, not just preaching, but to devote himself to the public reading of scriptures. It's your job, Timothy, to read the Bible to people as well. It's very different. You, you might have heard... 
occasionally. Have you ever heard sort of monks chanting the Bible or recordings of it or watched sort of you know, murder mysteries set in the olden days where monks chant the Bible and it's all very monotone. Da, 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 da. The reason they did that was they didn't want to give any interpretation in their voices. They wanted to just communicate the bare word. Boom, 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 boom. I'm not sure that's possible. Uh, it matters very often how we kind of emphasise things when we read scripture. And Joseph, to get back on track, uh, Joseph is a man who has simply been given two true predictions of what is going to happen. They're dreams that reveal his future. And the content is, as I say, more or less the same. Uh, The basic prediction is, Joseph, you are going to rule. You're going to rule over your brothers and they'll bow down to you. Even your father and mother. When we get to the 11 stars and the sun and moon, the interpretation is, well, pretty obvious, even to the family. Even they will bow before you. And we'll see that does happen. I'm not going to give it too many spoilers away now, but by the end of the story, well, the brothers are kneeling before Joseph. But we'll have to wait a few chapters before we see that. Uh, instead, for now, I want to think about how the Joseph story is, well, preaching to us about Christ. This is not simply a, a sort of fun story from, I don't know, four or 5,000 years ago. Uh, this story is woven into the, into the story of Scripture to teach us about Christ. Think about Jesus' words uh, to his disciples on the Emmaus Road after he's risen from the dead, uh, where, where he says to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe. Okay, why do you not believe that I'm back from the dead? Why do you not believe that I, in the resurrection? And what does he do? He takes them to the books of Moses and says, look, the law, that's the first five books of the, the Bible, including Genesis, the law should have taught you this. And indeed the prophets and the Psalms and other things as well. But even the book of Genesis teaches us about Christ, his death and his resurrection. So the story of Joseph is in some way about, jo- about Jesus. It pictures him, if you like. Why? Well, what do we see already? Already we've met the, a beloved son of the father who's hated by his brothers, to whom, to this beloved son, it is revealed that he will be raised up as a ruler, as king, even over his relatives. Do you hear the echoes of Jesus, the beloved son of the father, who becomes one of us, but is actually raised up above his brothers? Hebrews 2 says that, that Christ is our brother, as human beings, he becomes one of us. He's made like us in every way, apart from sin, of course. But he is raised up above us. In fact, he's even a child of Jacob. He is a descendant of Israel. He's a descendant of this particular family. Uh, there's probably even a little nuance in verse 11. Does this ring any bells? His, his brothers are jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind, kept the saying in his heart. Does that remind you of Mary? When, when things are prophesied about Jesus to Mary at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us Mary treasured all these things in her heart or in her mind. Interesting little echoes, aren't there? Uh, the point is, it, it was revealed to Joseph that he'll rule. Well, it was revealed to Jesus that he would one day rule, be enthroned as king. And that word revealed is important. I'm not sure Jesus ever had dreams. We're never told that. But, but God clearly, God the Father clearly spoke to Jesus. Now, Jesus is God as well as man. Okay, so as God, he knows everything. But he is truly a man. And we mustn't let the fact that he's God, if you like, 
cancel out the fact that he's also truly a man. He had to learn things. He wasn't born knowing his times tables. He wasn't born knowing how to walk. He wasn't born, therefore, as man, knowing that he was Messiah. Have you thought about that? Isn't that extraordinary? He had to learn as he grew up. He has a real human mind. And so slowly, day by day, as he learned, he learned to speak and understand words, he learned. And as he learned the Old Testament, he would learn it was about him. He would understand it perfectly, presumably, and in increasing measure. He would learn from the Old Testament, as God revealed it to him, that actually he was the promised king. He would read Psalm 2 or hear Psalm 2 read to him at the synagogue. He, he would read that the father says to the son, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. And at some point he would realise that is me. He would see, hear Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And at some point he would know that is me. It was revealed to him that he would be God's king above all others. It was revealed to Joseph that he'll rule, and it was revealed to Jesus that he would rule in an even greater sense. It was also revealed by Joseph he'll rule. It's not just that Joseph had the dream and kept it himself. He, spoke, he told others, I think quite rightly. Well, similarly with Jesus, it's revealed to him that he is the king. He, he, by the time his ministry, his public ministry begins, which is obviously what most of the gospel story is about, he knows he is the Messiah, and he's preaching it. Joseph and Jesus are both announcing the news, gospeling, you might say, that God has appointed a king. So, so keep your finger in Genesis 37 and just flip on to Philippians, a book in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, it's page 980. Nine hundred eighty. And Philippians 2 tells the story of Christ. We look at this on Sunday afternoons a little bit. Philippians 2, page 980, verse 5. Paul says to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't sit on his privileges, if you like. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. There he is. He becomes one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's Christ coming and dying for us. But if you like, that's the lowest point in his life. There's a turn upwards now. The U bends back upwards. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus is king. He, he died, but then he rose again. He was exalted, lifted up, if you like. Think of the ascension at the beginning of the book of Acts, where Christ goes back up into heaven. And we're told he sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father. But the point is, right now, you can't see that. The world can't see that. With our eyes, I mean. We, we can see who's sat behind the desk in the White House. We can see who's behind the door of number 10. We can see who's on the throne in Buckingham Palace. We can't see Christ, but he is there. He is exalted. And one day it will be revealed. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. I think that's probably a reference to hell. Even those who are cast away because they've rebelled will be forced to bow. One day people will see that Christ is Lord. 
Which brings us back to that whole right side of history argument. That the problem with saying that, that someone nowadays is on the wrong side of history is you, you don't know where history is going. You might be having an unpopular opinion today. The thing that you believe might be unpopular today, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be popular in the future. It doesn't mean that what you believe is right now won't be seen to be right in 100 years or 200 years or 400 years. To say that something is right just because it's popular now is a crazy belief, isn't it? When we look back at history, we see loads of beliefs that were very popular at the time, but we now know were completely wrong. Two, three hundred years ago, almost no one in this room would think that it's a good idea for women to be able to vote. Okay. It's very unlikely any of us were the brave outliers who could see that, that women were wrongly being pushed aside. Okay. Very unlikely any of us would have had the courage to spot that and stand out. Well, one or two brave souls did, but, but most people just believed what everybody else believed. That's just kind of what we do. We're herd animals. So to think that just because something is popular and thought of as right in our particular country today, and that therefore that makes it absolutely right, is always madness. In the story of Joseph, I suppose even more explicitly in Philippians, God is telling us that Jesus is king, and one day that will be revealed. So if you want to be on the right side of history, you want to be on the right side of Jesus. And thankfully, he's a king full of grace and mercy. I hope the service has taught us that already. He's not a king who, who looks at us and says, well, you've ignored me, you've never believed in me, you've done terrible things, so go away, I want nothing to do with you. No, he's a king who came in Philippians 2 to die for us, to provide mercy. And if, if you're not someone who'd call yourself a, a follower of Christ, don't think you have to do something to earn his favour. Rather, he offers you freely his favour and forgiveness. You can become one of his people. He died for our sins. And in many ways, that takes us back to the brothers. Come back with me to Genesis 37. Because they're the, the, the big, in some ways, almost the biggest character in this story or set of characters. That The story of Joseph is, is as much about the brothers, the 11, as it is about Joseph. In fact, the word brothers comes up 21 times in this chapter which gives you a bit of a clue that that's going to be one of the main themes. So let's look at the brothers. If Joseph was the son born to rule, the brothers, well, the brothers are bitter in rebellion. What's the most common verb used of them in Genesis 37? It's hate. So in verse 4, his brothers saw their father loved him more than all of them, and they hated him. And they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Literally, that's they couldn't say shalom to him. Shalom, you kind of hear it in one of those Hebrew words that's got brought into Christian songs, kind of trendy thing. You know, shalom just means peace. They can't say peace to Joseph. They can't bring themselves to give him a, a, a greeting of peace. They hate him. Same in verse 8. He tells the dream and they hate him even more. And then verse 11, they hear the second dream and they're jealous of him. They hate him. And they're carrying on, it's fair to say, a tradition in Genesis. Brothers hating brothers. Think of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain the older, Abel the younger. The older brother hates the younger one and kills him. Jacob and Esau fight, as we've already mentioned. Well, why? What do they hate? Well, they hate the dreams, don't they? They hate the words of Joseph. Notice they speak about his dreams and his words in verse 8. They hate God's revelation to them that the brother is going to rule over them. Now, we might have sympathy, okay, that they are sinned against the brothers. They, they shouldn't have been neglected by their father. But that doesn't excuse their sin. It doesn't make it okay. Hey, children, if you've got, 
you sense that one of your brothers is, or sisters is the favourite in the family, it doesn't make it okay to, well, throw them in a pit and sell them to slavery. Okay? We are sinned against, but that doesn't excuse our sin. That's actually a principle we need to get into our heads, isn't it? So often we excuse our sin by saying, yeah, but you should have seen what he said to me first. You'd react like that if you dot, dot, dot. Oh, I was tired. I was hungry. I had a long day at work. Fine. It doesn't excuse sin. Jesus was sinned against more than anyone, and yet he remained sinless. So yes, they're sinned against, but they really resent having someone to rule over them. And isn't that so modern? We hate the idea of someone ruling over us, especially one of our own. I don't bow to anyone. I'm in charge of my life. I'm free. A week or two ago now, about 10 days ago, I was at the university and the Christian Union there had asked me to go and do a talk. And the title was, Sex, Shots and Student Loans. Won't Jesus Limit My Freedom? Won't Jesus Limit My Freedom? I don't quite understand why Jesus would limit your freedom of your student loan. I think that's just looking for a third S. But you get the idea. Isn't it, you know, it was the end of the Thursday of Freshers' Week. We're meant to be having this sort of party of our life. I'm surely Jesus is going to limit my freedom. That's a you know, little 20-minute talk at lunchtime. They see you put on a free lunch. And I spoke about how it's good to have Jesus King, how he, as he says, he came to set us free. So actually, although we do serve him, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of service that is freeing. Uh, it, it, it releases us to be the people he created us to be. It's the freedom of, you know, a dolphin who's then led out into the ocean. You know, it, it, we're free to be who we were created to be. Yes, we serve, but oh, we spoke about how his, his law, his restraint is, is a good thing for us. Uh, yes, his, his word tells us how to live, but it, it's like the highway code. You know, it's, it's just better driving on the, the, the left-hand side of the road. Okay, if you want to be free and just drive free on the right-hand side of the road, it's going to go wrong. So there's all sorts of good things we can say about what it means to serve Jesus. But, but then the, the way these lunch bars work, these lunchtime events work, is that people can text in questions anonymously to the guy hosting the event. And the first question came in, and the first question was, what do you think of dinosaurs, fossils, and homosexuality? Okay. <laughs> it's an unusual sort of combination of the three, and you know, I, I don't really like dinosaurs, but I haven't got many opinions on them. <laughs> I've tried to talk about that one. But the next one was the really interesting question to me. The next question, I can't quote it exactly, but the next question that came in basically said this. Look, I hear what you're saying about how actually it's a good way to live serving Jesus and it's freeing, and, but, but I'm happy and free. I don't need to live that way. My way of life is perfectly good. And that's a fair question, isn't it? Again, if you're not a Christian, it might be something you're thinking. My life isn't a disaster. I don't feel like I'm enslaved. I don't see that I'm missing anything. And we need to be able to have an answer to that uh, as Christians, because lots of people are just pretty happy, at least at some level. Really happy without Jesus. I never did at the time. I couldn't think of anything clever to say. <laughs> I'm not sure I can think of anything clever to say now, but, but afterwards, I, I, it came to me, a particular verse came to me, in Romans 7, Paul says that the law is good. That Jesus' way of life, the law is good. And, and that verse tells us two things. Having Jesus rule over us is good. And that's what I'd really spoken about in the talk. But the second thing that verse tells us, the law is good, is that the law is law. The law is law. That might sound really, stu- really obvious, sorry. 
But, but what that means is the law has consequences. Any law you break has consequences. You can for now live in rebellion against Jesus and you will be able to get away with it for, I don't know, decades possibly. You can have a kind of freedom, but the kind of freedom you have now, if you're, if you're living in rebellion against Jesus, is the kind of freedom that, that an elephant has that's just jumped out of a plane at 30,000 feet. Okay, he will have 10, 20, 30 seconds of great freedom and excitement. But the law of gravity is not one you can disobey for that long. Sometimes we just need the, if you like, the, the cold bucket of, bucket of cold water in the face, the shock of being reminded that, that Jesus is on the throne. There are consequences to rebellion. You can rebel for a very long time and probably have quite a happy life, lots of us, especially in the West. We're so well provided for. But it is still an act of rebellion against God's king. And he's graciously told us where history is going, and we need to be on the right side of it. The right side of Christ, therefore. And in case, particularly if you're not a Christian, in case you think I'm sort of getting at you this morning, that the real twist here in the passage, Genesis 37, is actually who is it that's rebelling? It's the, the brothers, the founding figures of Israel, the 12 tribes, i.e. God's people. And a couple of chapters earlier, the, the particular word used to describe them is the congregation. It's the word we translate in the New Testament as church. This is the church in rebellion against the ruler that God has appointed over them. Not the Egyptians or the ones who already don't believe in God or whoever the baddies might be in Genesis. This is the church ignoring God's word to them. Now we'll see in future weeks what kind of kingdom Jesus has. We'll see how he gets there. The Joseph story gives us that pattern. But let me ask you, if you're a Christian this morning, you can't see Jesus on the throne, but you have been told he is there and his word has come to us in far more fullness in the Bible than, than the brothers had, just these dreams reported to them. So you know whether you're obeying Jesus as king by whether you're obeying his word. Which is why the Bible needs to be at the centre of everything. So are you grumbling against God's word or rejoicing in it? Are you obeying it sort of outwardly so you don't look bad in the eyes of your fellow Christians, but inwardly just annoyed at what he calls you to do? Do you think of your identity or Jesus' identity? Is he primarily your friend or Jesus is a friend? John 15, 15. I call you friends, Jesus says. Sure. Or do you think of him as, just as a saviour? He is a saviour. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born, the angels announce. He is a saviour. But he's also Lord or Christ or King. He rules over you. Do we see ourselves as servants? You know, the Queen's equerries and servants and valets, you know, they have their uniforms. They, they know if they look in the mirror, I belong to the Queen, I serve the Queen. You serve a king. Is that part of your identity? Will you submit every area of your life to him? I heard once of a, a king, hundreds of years ago now, back in the 700s, who, who converted to Christianity or seemingly converted to Christianity, they told all his, his, his soldiers, a guy called Clovis, all, they were all going to get baptised in the river. And they all went down into the river. But before they went in, he told them to hold their sword hands above the water. He said, you can baptise all of me, but I'm still going to fight. Keep my sword out. And we laugh at it, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But, but actually, we do that. Yes, Lord, you can have all of me, but not my romantic life. Yes, Lord, you can have all of me, but not my money. Yes, Lord, you can have all of me, but don't tell me where to live. Yes, Lord, you can have all of me, but... And there's just a but... There are no buts. We're not employees who negotiate a contract with Christ. We are servants. We're owned. 
has told us where history is going. And actually, that's a great encouragement, and we ought to end on that encouraging note. However much you might feel like you're failing at it, if you put your trust in Christ, you're trying to live for him, you're on the right side of history. You might be on the wrong side of the office, the wrong side of the school, the wrong side of the classroom, but you're on the right side of history. You're not the odd one out. And he delights in the obedience, however faultingly, of his children, especially when it is under pressure at times. It's so encouraging to know that when we stand up for Christ, for his word, for his way of life, for his gospel, that it delights a king in heaven. He won't miss it. Okay. You might not get an instant reward. You know, it's like a coin drops out of heaven or something. But you're storing up treasure in heaven. You're storing up eternal glory. You're pleasing the one who has bought you. Joseph tells us that God has put a king on the throne of heaven. One day that will be revealed to everybody. One day everybody would bow. So for now, live in line with the truth of history. Live in line with the future and keep your eyes on the throne in heaven. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, we praise you for the way that uh, you weave uh, the glorious gospel of Christ into this story of history and that even in Joseph we begin to see in shadowy form uh, the good news that's revealed in Christ and we pray that for those uh, of your children Lord that you would give them courage give us courage to live for a king we cannot see Uh, might we stand uh, with him even when we feel like we're in a minority and Father we pray this morning for all those who've not yet as seeing that glory of Christ, that you would reveal it to them and bring them to bow the knee in joy at the grace and the love that he offers. And this we ask in his name. Amen.